The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Matt Liban. He is a professional foodscaper and owner of Custom Foodscaping, which is based in St. Louis, Missouri, but provides education and leadership to foodscapers nationwide. As a foodscaper, Mr. Liban is a practitioner and designer of beautiful edible landscapes for residential clients as well as institutions, including schools, universities, hospitals, community centers, and restaurants. He believes that food connects all of us and that by cultivating food crops with a reverence for Mother Earth, we can begin to heal our bodies and the land. Prior to custom foodscaping, Mr. Liban was a Peace Corps volunteer in Paraguay, where he was initially bit by the gardening bug. He went on to study ecological design and work on several farms, including farm manager for five seasons at the award-winning Earthdance Organic Farm School in Ferguson, Missouri. Custom foodscaping specializes in raised bed vegetable gardens, food forests, orchards, herb gardens, culinary gardens, and profitable vegetable farms. The Foodscaper Toolshed provides free webinars and resources for professional-level foodscapers nationwide. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. I think that what you are doing is the future of quote-unquote landscaping, and it could not be more essential as we face so many diet-related diseases as well as harms from the traditional, what is called mow and blow landscapers. So what was it that piqued your interest in the Peace Corps in Paraguay that led you to want to bring forth what you learned there back to the States? I think it was my aha moment, my light bulb moment that really flipped the switch was during that Peace Corps training, we went on a tour of what was called a permaculture farm, where it was basically a farm that had studied the permaculture principles of earth care and people care, share of the surplus. And they were integrating a lot of their systems. They were using the pig manure to heat their home and create biogas. They had animals cleaning up all of the mangoes and avocados that had fallen to the ground that they weren't eating. They were heating up an outdoor shower by running tubing through a compost pile that was active. And the whole experience felt like alchemy, just pure miracles everywhere I looked. And then the food that they served us was so incredible. And it just felt like this is so right. This is so connected, you know, where we have this experience where we understand where our food comes from. The people and the animals are being taken care of. The food is healthier, fresher, more nutritious than I've ever had. And I just felt like I wanted to be a part of that every day. And that's what sent me down this whole path, really. Yeah. Don't you wish that we learned these principles in elementary school? 
You know, I do. But on the other hand, I also feel like sometimes it's being marketed in the way that we talk about it these days as more complicated than it has to be. This doesn't have to be a subject in school or something we even ensure that gets taught, quote unquote. I believe that if we just do the right thing, which is create abundant ecological spaces in the places that we live, work, and play, then this will just be woven into the fabric of culture the way that it has been for thousands of years before schools, before we even had all this formal education. People understood where food came from. People were connected to place and seasonality because in and around their dwellings, they had either wild landscapes that were tended with the goal in mind of providing for needs, or they were intentional farms and gardens that were more woven into the landscape. So I would love to just get back to something more simple where the idea of just having a garden and fruit and nut trees around our homes isn't seen as some radical hippie thing, but just the most obvious thing we could ever do. That's right. And if only we had more of that around our institutions so that it became normalized. So every school had a garden, for example. I've heard this quote that there's a school in every garden. There's so many opportunities to learn science and math, and we could write stories about what we eat and what we taste and smell. So bringing it all together could be so powerful. Matt, you mentioned permaculture principles briefly. Could you help us understand what exactly that means? Well, it's one of those harder to define concepts, but really what it means is that we look to the natural systems of nature, which indigenous folks have been doing for thousands and thousands of years. And the more modern incarnation is using some of this permaculture language, but it's really what is a abundant, thriving ecology look like? And what are the systems within it? And how do we use those same systems for the places that we live in? You know, how do we design using those same ideas? So we can look to nature at a very basic level and say, oh my gosh, when left more undisturbed, maybe with some human massaging, we have an incredible diversity of insects, of microbiology, of plants, of animals. There is a balance that can get struck in many cases. And I think that that basic concept would guide, well, what should our agricultural systems be designed like? Should we just have a few commodity crops that the vast majority of Americans get their calories from? Or should we try to have hundreds and hundreds of important food crops that create a patchwork of diversity in our agricultural landscape? So we can extrapolate these permaculture ideas of integrate, not separate, which is the same idea, this thread I'm pulling on of diversity to influence everything that we design. Exactly. You know, every time I have a conversation with organic farmers, they always emphasize this notion of diversity. And before I learned that, I would drive through places like Iowa and I'd see all this green, either corn or soybeans. And I didn't know that there was a problem. So unless we're taught the dangers of monocropping systems in terms of the loss of biodiversity and the benefits of biodiversity and what that looks like, 
we're really at a loss. So I commend you for helping to show just how beautiful biodiversity can be. Thanks, Melinda. You know, if I can add one thing to your comment there, which is that maybe you were driving through Iowa in the summer or the fall, but let us not forget that a green Iowa is only for a fraction of the year while that corn or soy is growing, which of course is only maybe, you know, a four month life cycle. Mm -hmm. And that the rest of the year, we are leaving our soils barren, leaching pesticides, herbicides, fungicides into the hydrological cycle, into our rivers and streams. We're leaving them erosive. We're leaving them to burn up organic material through the repeated tillage and plowing. So we have this notion that this breadbasket of the U.S., this Midwestern area is so abundant, but really we're squandering eight months of the year most of the time by not growing anything, meaning there's no photosynthesis happening. And where there's no photosynthesis, there's no soil food web below that being fed, the soil food web being all of the microorganisms that we need for healthy soil. Right. You know, I caught something in your bio. You described yourself as a practitioner of beautiful edible landscapes. And I wanted to put health practitioner in there because what you're really doing is you're providing health. You're providing clean water, clean air, nourishing foods for people to eat as well as the soil microorganisms to be nourished on as well. So I really would like for all of the individuals who practice edible landscaping to really see themselves as health practitioners as well. I love that. This is so key. You know, that's a huge part of why we grow our own food. There's many reasons for the the spiritual, for the community building, but also for the fact that it's so hard to even get good, clean food. Going to the farmer's market is Saturday for four hours. There's a lot of amazing food there, but it's hard to always fill the pantry with that food. So growing it yourself is in many ways much more convenient in my experience. It's convenient and it's also affordable. There are farmer's markets, for example, that have the SNAP program so people can go and use their SNAP benefits. But not all farmer's markets accept SNAP. And for people who are on a low income, people tell me that they can't afford those fruits and vegetables at the market. So by having your own food garden, that becomes affordable food right there. Absolutely. All right. We've gotten into some of the benefits. Climate resiliency also with this kind of landscaping, supporting pollinator habitats, birds, butterflies. I want to know, though, how you handle some of the challenges. During the summer in particular, we're seeing more drought in many parts of the country. We're struggling either with too much rain or not enough rain, or when we used to be able to plan on rain coming, it's not. So how do you handle water challenges? That's a great question. One of the ways that we handle this is like when we set up our gardens, we use drip irrigation. So that is a really important tool in our fruit and vegetable growing systems is using water really smartly so that the water that we 
have when we're using it. It's going directly at plant roots. It's dripping slowly. It's not indiscriminately spraying water into the air on hot days or causing any runoff. I think that's a big tool that we use. I also think that the concept of heavy mulching is a really important one for mitigating our drought times. And we are always employing mulch at a heavy dose and thinking about plants that can cover the ground. You know, that's another part of that whole discussion I mentioned regarding Iowa is that when we have eight months of the year where there's nothing growing on the soil, not only are we not getting photosynthesis, but we're drying out the soil because there's nothing shading the soil. But dense plant cover and dense planting schemes using plants that spread and just want to grow, they're going to help shade the soil and minimize how much that soil dries out. We also utilize really important earth management techniques like rain gardens so that when we get large rain events, there's depressions in the landscape that are strategically located to infiltrate large amounts of water, ensuring that the whole site stays hydrated for longer. So if we have a little rain garden where hundreds and hundreds of gallons can slowly infiltrate over a 36-hour period, well, the whole area, not just the rain garden itself, but the whole area around that rain garden is also staying moist for longer. So there's a lot of great water-wise practices. The last one I'll say is that we utilize a number of rainwater catchment tanks to ensure that we're being good water stewards, catching water off of impervious surfaces, and then using that to water our gardens. Mm -hmm. Matt, let me take one break. I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Matt Lebon. He is a professional foodscaper and owner of Custom Foodscaping, which is based in the St. Louis metro area, but provides education and leadership to foodscapers nationwide. So Matt, you mentioned compost, and are there any rules that we should all know about compost? My favorite bumper sticker is this one that I've seen a few times. It says, compost happens. It's so simple. We are overcomplicating compost. Organic material, which is everything from an apple core to a wood chip to a leaf to the feather of a bird, is going to break down and become compost. We can create maybe more microbiologically diverse compost piles by managing our compost piles. But I would say to not overthink it in terms of don't let that be the deterrent. Compost is so important and it plays such a huge role in the water question that you're talking about. Because really what compost is, is decomposed organic matter. And organic matter or compost is a crucial element in increasing the water retention capacity of soils. So if we want to address our water issues then we can get more organic matter or compost into the soil, and that will allow our plants to stay much more hydrated for a longer period of time. When I hear about these composting workshops, it's like, oh, I have to have so much brown and so much green. But you're saying that maybe that's overthinking it a bit? I would say so. My favorite way of composting is ensuring that there are plenty of browns. So you can never have too many browns. So those are things like leaves and straw and dried grass clippings, those things. 
will always allow your pile to balance out. Now, you can create some funk if you just throw food scraps on top of food scraps on top of food scraps, all this wet material. That can start to go anaerobic and smell kind of funky and be an unpleasant area to be around. But eventually, you know what will happen? It will become compost. That's great. And everyone should have a compost pot, I think, in their kitchens to collect all of the rinds and skins and seeds of things that we would ordinarily put in the trash. That is such valuable compost material. All right. I want to talk about additional challenges, and I'm using this time to share some of my own. But we have seen increasing deer pressure, as well as rabbits and squirrels and People seem to think that insects as a rule, because we're not really familiar with the beneficial insects, we tend to see a bug and we automatically want to kill it when really many times insects are working to our advantage. So what do you find to be the biggest challenges in terms of quote unquote pests? And how do you advise your clientele? Well, deer is by far the hardest one. And we have serious deer challenges the basic way that we're most commonly handling it is fencing. Yeah. Which can be expensive. And I hate that solution. We'll often put deer fencing around a garden and it's a big undertaking. We are experimenting more with one thing that I'm excited about, which is the motion activated sprinklers. Yes. So I can't tell the listeners like, for sure, it's going to work. You'll never see a deer in your garden. But we've seen some promise and it's definitely a much more affordable option than the fence. And putting those around the perimeter of the garden, I think, could help keep deer out. Right. I'm going to have to try that. I want to talk about insects because I have a story. There's a woman around the corner who has a beautiful natural garden and it attracts children. Children will come by and they'll look at it. But as soon as they see an insect, they have a fear reaction. And she's been working with them to help them understand that, no, these are good insects. I don't know how it happens, but there seems to be almost this fear of the unknown, right? And if we see a bug, the inclination is to kill it. How do you help educate people about that? So I'm not a child psychologist, but my own personal take on this is that we have to educate parents about how they're raising their children and what their relationship to all of these beneficial creatures is. Very often in my experience, even people like teachers and parents are saying, that that's dirty, don't touch that, that could hurt you, that could bite you, let's kill it, get it out of the house. These are all the messages that kids are internalizing at a super early age before they're even verbal. They're picking up from adults that these things are not good for you. Don't get close. It could hurt you. You know, fear the unknown. I think we have to encourage parents and teachers to think critically about the message that they're passing on to these young children because they learned that reaction somewhere. And in my heart, I do not believe that children are scared because it is biologically wired that way. I think somebody told them there's reason to be scared of those things. I'd be curious about your opinion on that. Well, I think, as you mentioned earlier, having exposure culturally to natural foodscapes where we see insects performing 
good roles for us. And we help that kind of nature education along with our elementary school education. I think that's where we can have the biggest impact in teaching how we're all connected in this universe rather than having these systems where we're in control and we're dominating and we're wiping out one species. I was curious to know how you felt about the invasive thinking. I am definitely more of an outlier in my field. I am not nearly as passionate as many people that I often talk with about the removal of invasive species. First of all, I hate the negative thinking about invasives, like bad, ugly, unwanted. It's all of these negative terms. And these are just beautiful plants who, wherever they came from, they evolved with their gift to their natural ecosystem. And these are just plants who've never wronged anybody. We are only lacking in our ability to see the larger story, in my opinion. And oftentimes we are willing to go to great lengths to poison all of these plants, poison the land that they are on, only to find that we can't even spray enough poison to kill all this stuff because the spread of honeysuckle and the spread of autumn olive and the spread of so many of the plants that are common in our region you, you've got a thousand acre farm that's full of honeysuckle and you can wipe it out and the neighboring farm isn't wiping it out and a huge, huge seed bank is just spreading there again the next year and we have to stay on it. I think that there's reasonable examples for the effort to get rid of invasives in favor of something more biodiverse and abundant, but the level of energy both human energy and mechanical energy, roundup energy, the lengths we are going to, it seems out of balance to me. I could not agree more. I see such devotion, as you described, to getting rid of these invasives to the point where we're putting so much poison down without really reading those labels carefully. There's always an unintended consequence where another creature or plant that would be desirable is harmed. So I'm with you in helping others rethink this whole notion of invasives. Matt, we just have a few minutes left, and I want to offer you an opportunity to share stories about what you've learned in your work. I think the biggest thing that I've learned is how much parents seek opportunities to get their children outside and away from their iPads and the iPhones and all the technology and how the largest opportunity we have is planting a foodscape where a kid, before it's too late, can go outside and pick a strawberry or pick some asparagus and know what it is to grow up with that tactile experience with dirt under their fingernails and... I hear stories like that from parents. We get pictures. This one incredible client harvested their grapes on the grape trellis that we planted them and made grape jelly and dropped it off to us at our house. And just like how powerful that is. She has two little kids with whom she made that grape jelly. And that experience of growing something, have it be bountiful, making it from scratch in the kitchen with your kids, having them learn that lesson, dropping it off to somebody else and spreading that bounty. 
those are the anecdotes that give me hope that this can make the world a better place. Well, I have seen statistics and visited urban landscapes where gardens have been incorporated, and I've learned that crime rates decline, mental health improves, physical health improves, even property values improve when we've got some sort of landscaping that goes beyond the monoculture lawn. Absolutely. It's such a win-win. I think that we just have a little bit of education to do because there's always going to be the naysayers who say, well, what are we going to do with all the apples if they start falling to the ground? Which to me, these are just crazy problems to be concerned about. We have solved much harder issues than what to do with abundant food falling to the ground. So I think we can figure out the foodscaping issues as well. Right. I remember having a discussion with a group about having fruit trees. And as you say, there's the fruit litter that people talk about and don't like. But there was one comment that, oh my gosh, it's going to bring bees. Mm. It's all just points to this huge disconnection and re-education of ecological literacy that has got to start at the early age. And I feel like that is why it's so key to grow up with this stuff, because if parents are willing to make the investment in raising the next generation to grow up around these plants and feel a degree of comfort and familiarity, then I think we will have the stewards and champions within our communities when they're adults to actually mobilize the resources needed to make this possible. Right. You described a positive experience with a family growing the grapes. And I think that that is such a beautiful example of the joy of abundance. So we're nourishing ourselves, we're harvesting together, we're taking children away from screen time and bringing us together to make something nourishing. And then sharing that food is beautiful. Have you seen also positive examples at institutions where you've established foodscapes? We've seen great examples, especially at restaurants and schools. One of the things that gives me the most hope is planting perennials at schools, because I feel passionately that the school vegetable garden is a really hard thing because of the way that our summer break system is set up. But we have worked with several schools where we've done things more like food forest style, planting lots of fruit trees that bear in the fall, things like pawpaws and persimmons and apples and pears, and things that bear in the spring like asparagus and perennial herbs, like lemon balm, for example, is one that I love in schools. So we've worked with some schools that are integrating their gardens into the curriculum. Two projects just this spring we're doing are school community projects where there will be integrated into the learning. And we've also worked with several restaurants that they love the weird ingredients, the easier to grow plants that are oftentimes lesser known. And so they really are a key ally in educating the greater public about these types of plantings. I'm just seeing rock star chefs have a huge role now in the education world, because these are parents who have kids. And when they learn about, oh, these are these cool native foods, these are important plants for our ecology, and getting the opportunity to eat them gets them excited about buying them, about growing them. And a lot of our cultural education, I think, is happening through restaurants these days. 
Mm, I agree. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. We've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Matt Lebon. He is a professional foodscaper and owner of Custom Foodscaping, which is based in the Metro St. Louis area, but provides education and leadership to foodscapers nationally. And the website is www.customfoodscaping.com. I'll provide links along with the show. Matt, thank you so much for the important work that you're doing and for being my guest. I'm so honored to have gotten to speak with you. Thank you.